And I have this conversation all the time with like younger people that are, that, that I know maybe locally that, you know, want to get in the real estate space or they, you know, they've been trying to do some wholesaling. Maybe they're doing a little bit of flipping and they're like, I want to go full time and I got to get out of my W2 job. I just got to, and I, I need to go do real estate. And I'll ask them why, you know, what, what is it you're trying to go do? And if they give me any indication that they're just trying to get out of their W2 job, I'm like, you already failed. You know, you're, you're le- you've got the total wrong mindset to go become an entrepreneur. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Chris Friedman. Chris is an experienced real estate investor with over $20 million of assets under management. In his 20-year real estate investment career, he has focused exclusively on multifamily apartment buildings that can generate immediate cash flow. Over 26 years, he has been fortunate to experience financial success through his high-tech sales roles and leadership roles at some of the leading companies in the world, such as Juniper Networks and Citrix. He's learned how to achieve high-performance sales while redeploying a portion of his commissions into cash flow generating assets. I'm going to stop there and just say most of our listeners know that I actually employ this strategy a lot to help smooth up and the ups and downs of my commission sales. So Chris, I'm super excited to get into this conversation and just say, welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. It's nice to connect up with somebody that uh, you know sees it the same way I do. Um, you know, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, I'm just, I'm pretty, uh, pretty plain. I just like a scoop of vanilla with uh, some chocolate sauce on it. Okay. Okay. Now you're in Portland. So I would assume Portland's got some really funky, weird hipster vanilla out there. Where's the best ice cream shop in Portland? Yeah. Um, oh, the fact that I can't, you, you asked me the question and I know the topic of the podcast, the, um, <laughs> we have an ice cream joint here. That's uh, incredibly popular middle of the winter lines around the block. I think uh, Oprah mentioned it once on her show and my kids would kill me that I can't remember the name of it, but they, I don't actually go there because their flavors are so um, outlandish. You know, lavender is one of their really popular ones, Um, but I'm simple. Just give me some good vanilla. Okay. Well, if you do remember, you have to let me know because I am dying to get to Oregon. And if I can get some free ice cream or some good ice cream out of it as well, that would be just a dream come true. Yeah. I'm sure it'll come to me right as we're closing out the show. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I, um, so, you know, I've been active in the multifamily real estate uh, space for over 20 years. Over my 26 years of working in high-tech sales, um, I've just been very passionate about um, continuously investing locally in multifamily real estate. I never jumped into the single homes. I mean, I did house hack a duplex and that's how I, I got started. Um, but I really went straight from there, straight into uh, four, eight, 15 units and just uh, continue to focus on the multifamily space. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that really got my attention, um, so, I, you know, back in 99, 2000, I was working uh, at a company called Lucent. And uh, this is before the dot-com bubble burst and making great money. My first job working for a vendor. And I was dumping all of my earnings into into the stock market, all into tech stocks. Um, Lucent had a deal at the time where if you put your your 401k matching and you took it in Lucent stock, they would actually give you a higher match, almost double than the normal cash cash match. And so I did that. 
Um, and then the dot-com bubble ca- came and burst and, and all, of the, all of those accounts cratered. And, um, you know, at the time I, uh, had, you know, I moved into my duplex and so that was going fine. And I had a, a future partner of mine who I met that, um, you know, he'd been doing it for 30 plus years owning multifamily real estate in uh, kind of what is now a hip area of Portland, but he had bought these buildings when it wasn't a hip area. So, I mean, yeah. he had owned them outright, all paid off and they were like 18, 19 units. And I he had three or four of those and I'm watching them make great cash flow and great income. Uh, during that recession, while a number of his friends that all that all had done really well in their career um, were starting to dial it back, and so that's when I kind of said, you know, I I think he's onto something. That's that's really what I want. And so I just kind of set up set a goal for myself that over the next whatever my career, I wanted to buy 300 units, get them all paid off, and then that would generate all the income that we would ever need as a family. Get, let us do whatever we wanted to do in, in terms of giving back and just create all kinds of financial freedom. And now fast forward, I realize that it doesn't have to be 300 units paid off. There's, there's a number of different ways to get to, you know, a big cash flow number, but that was, that was kind of what uh, really got me started in the uh, multifamily space. Yeah. You mentioned um, you house hacked a duplex is, was that your first deal that you ever did? Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you know about that strategy? Did you read anything? Did you have mentors out there that were teaching you about that? Or did you just think, Hey, this might be a good idea? Well, no, it's actually, it's a great question. So I knew I wanted to go buy a rental and I didn't have any intention of where it was going to go. I just, it just seemed like a good thing to do. It was just, it was just real estate. And I had a, I had a house that I lived in and I had a couple of roommates at the time. So I was going to move out of that, buy a duplex. And um, my, my future partner found it in the paper. And he said, look, if you don't buy this, I'm going to buy it. And so I said, all right, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And so I, you know, really without really having any clue around what I was doing, I trusted that he knew what he was doing. And so I made the purchase and then started to kind of figure out, oh, you need to have a rental agreement for this tenant. You know, where do I get that from? So going down to the legal store in downtown Portland to figure all that out. Yeah. Did, um, who was the, the partner or your future so- partner? How did you know him? Yeah. So he, it turned out he, he was my future father-in-law and okay. um, you know, we ended up building a relationship that really wasn't around family in any way. I mean, it was just pure business. We, we were very similar, very frugal people. Uh, he just was much older than I was. And we thought a lot uh, alike around a number of things. And, uh, but we also had some great differences where, um, you know, clearly I'm a salesperson. And so I liked being in front of tenants. I liked dealing with the business part of um, you know, real estate. He was a maintenance guy. He liked going to Home Depot. He liked fixing lights. He liked replacing, you know, electrical switches. Um, he did not want to deal with the tenants. And so I was like, that's fine. I'm busy. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the maintenance either. So we kind of figured out what lanes that we enjoyed and what lanes we had time for, and just kind of continue to develop this partnership over, um, 20 years. Yeah. Are, are you handy at all? No. Yeah. I like to Great say at starting a me, project, not good at finishing a project. I like to say, if you see, see me swing a hammer, you never know if I was left-handed or right-handed. So <laughs> I like this idea though, of finding complementary skill sets. I think too often when people are looking for partners, they're looking for someone that's just like them, that does something similar and they have similar values or skill sets. 
but they don't recognize that what makes a good partner, I think, is you have to have the right value system in place first and foremost, but also somebody that has a complementary skill set. It's not good for Chris to be exactly good at what Matt's good at, because if you are, then we're not really creating the synergies or the additional expertise that two people can bring to the table. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like you and I could probably connect and chat all day long because we're very similar and that's fun. Have a great conversation, but in terms of balancing out the labor and the work, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Is so where did you go from the duplex? Well, first of all, do you still own the duplex? No, no. So, and that's part of uh, where I went from it. So um, I, I had the duplex and it was going great, moved out, got married. My wife, there was no way she was going to live in a duplex. So uh, I moved out, rented out the other unit, bought a house. And then, uh, um, my, uh, father-in-law at that time, my partner, we bought a fourplex and that was going great. And then, uh, we found a 15 unit building in the classifieds that was for sale by owner. And, uh, we pursued it and ended up, um, I ended up doing a 1031 exchange of the duplex into the 15 unit building. And, uh, that ended up being a great deal. Cause that kicked off that really fueled a lot of our future investment. Cause it just kicked off a tremendous amount of cash flow uh, over the years. Yeah. So two questions on that, just to clarify for listeners that might not know. First, can you explain to us what a 1031 exchange is? And then second, what are the classifieds? Yeah, right. <laughs> the newspaper, you know, back before the internet. Um, but that's what you had to do back then. Just like, you know, how, if you're looking for an off-market deal today, there's certain tactics you have to do. But back then, you know, you had to go look in the newspaper every single day. And sometimes during the week, there wasn't, you know, a huge listing, but there might be one that was in there versus Sunday had all the listings. So, yep. um, yeah, so 1031 is, so it's an, it's an opportunity to take an asset. Uh, you bought it for hundred thousand dollars. You're going to sell it for $200,000. Now, if you just sell it, you're going to have, you know, minus whatever, um, other accounting things that might come into play. We'll just keep it simple. You might have about a hundred thousand dollar gain that you're going to have to pay capital gains taxes on. But if you do a 1031 exchange, you can take all the proceeds and you have to take all of the cash and roll that into another deal. So let's say you bought it for 100K, you sold it for 200K, but over that period of time, you've paid down $50,000 of debt. You're now having 100, you're, you're now going to have $150,000 of proceeds coming out of that. Well, if you do a 1031 exchange, you can take all of those proceeds, roll them into another deal, and now you have avoided having to pay capital gains taxes. And so what you're doing is you're taking those capital gains taxes and really borrowing that money from Uncle Sam, and it's allowing you to buy more in your next deal. And eventually, um, you know, you're going to have to pay at some point when you sell, unless, you know, somehow you you die and you pass it on through your estate. Um, But it's really a vehicle to defer paying capital gains taxes by redeploying it into another asset of of greater or equal, I'm sorry, of greater value than what you're selling. Yeah. And deferral is one of the best tax strategies. I like to say there are three D's of taxes in real estate. There's depreciation, deductions, and deferrals. And that's probably one of the most powerful tools in the arsenal there to continue to pump that tax bill down the line. And if you have it set up right and you have trust and things like that, you can even pass it on to your heirs tax-free so they never have to pay tax on it. Um, But I want to go back. So you you were going from duplexes, quads, and then you find the 15 unit and you bought the 15 unit. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, what was the difference between managing two units versus 15 units? Um, maybe the, the structure of the debt or just ongoing day-to-day maintenance of it? Yeah, you know, the, the day-to-day maintenance was just uh, just a little bit more at scale. Um, you know, bigger buildings have slightly different 
problems that you have to start to deal with and just getting familiar with that. Um, but really, it was not all that different. I mean, the financing is commercial financing versus um, you know, non-commercial financing. But beyond that, it's really about scale. And that's, that's sort of what uh, kind of opened my eyes up to, wow, it's, yeah, I, I ended up buying a 20, 22 unit, a 26 unit later on. And it was like, well, you know, uh, initially that 15 unit seemed huge, right? I went from four to 15 and it just seemed like a massive leap. And then about 22 and 26 is like, well, I, I'm doing the same amount of work. Um, why not go bigger? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, I, I, there's really not that much of a difference, except you just need to treat it with a little bit more of a professional approach. Um, you know, you have to be looking at the fact that you have 15 families living in the building. Um, you, you, you know, you need to have a system that allows you to be responsive and scale to um, their demands, right? If there's an issue, if it's Christmas, if it's Thanksgiving, it's, it's, 11 o'clock at night and something big happens, you need to be ready and have a plan on how you're going to deal with that. And just, you know, the more units, the, the, the chances are that you're going to have more of those. Yeah. Were you still managing those properties as you scaled too? We were, yeah, up until about five years ago. Okay. How did you, what, what kind of systems or tips and tricks out there would you offer somebody that's kind of scaling their, their rental portfolio and still doing property management themselves? Yeah, you know, I would, uh, so... Don't do what I did. Um, you know, initially, you know, we were kind of hokey about our record keeping. And, and back in the day, right, there weren't electronic systems to, to, to do what you can do today. Um, so, the, I mean, the best thing we did was we got onto a SaaS platform and, um, you know, it just made it significantly easier to, to create a more professional experience for the tenant, more professional experience around accounting, more professional experience around, you know, managing maintenance requests and open tasks and so on. Um, prior to that, uh, or without doing that, uh, much more manual, and it just became harder as you scaled. Even if you're starting small, what a perfect time to set up the professional system. Just do it now, figure out the challenges, figure out how you integrate the uh, electronic payment system, just get it all figured out why it's two units or four units, um, and then you'll have less fear and less of a hurdle to scale up and go bigger. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things I've learned. Um that was the mistakes I made in my first couple of years is I was not collecting receipts. I was not doing anything institutional. I wasn't even really keeping records of income coming in and expenses coming out. And it came to tax season. And I just said, Hey, uh, you know, CPA, I own a bunch of real estate. Give me all my tax benefits. And they were like, well, how much did you spend? How much do you want to deduct? What, uh, what's your schedule E and all these kind of things that I had no idea on. What, uh, what does the SaaS platform use today? And do you like it? Or did you look at any others out there? Yeah, it's called Buildium. It's okay. uh, I like it. Yeah, it's, I mean they got acquired, so it's changed over time. But uh, it's still it's a great platform. And uh, you know, as you scale, there's more and more things like any any SaaS platform, right? Oh, you want that? We'll go ahead and click on that extra uplift and charge, and we can go ahead and integrate that in. So I've integrated um, some of the uh, credit check, background check functionality that's there in the tool. That's pretty handy. But it's uh, you know it's well worth the money. You know, in fact, yeah. I mean, just as an example, right? It's you don't want to have late fees as a mode of, of income growth, but if they're not paying, they should pay their late fee. And um, this will automatically remind them that their payments do automatically remind them that they're late and it'll automatically load the late payment fee in there and then send them a note that it's, that it's due. And, you know, sometimes they just pay it. Yeah. And I love having the, someone else to blame too. Hey, I, I would love to give you a break here, Chris, I'm being late, but the system won't allow it because it's a piece right. of software. So you turned over everything five years ago 
was that a good decision now looking back on it or would you have done property managers from the beginning or talk us through that? Oh, the best decision. I was, you know, I think I mentioned in the beginning that um, both my partner and I had a, a very frugal um, kind of demeanor about us. And the idea of spending money on a property manager um, for my partner, that just, it would never happen. I mean, he just couldn't even imagine. He just came from a different era. Um, and for myself, it was like, oh gosh, 5%, 6%. I mean, that's, that's, that's my money. I could just go do that. Um, but, you know, as you scale and anything in business uh, or in life, you, know, you, get to a, you get to a volume of anything um, you, you face some challenges. You can't do the the job as well. And I, once we hit about you know eighty to one hundred units, it was becoming harder to scale, and it was actually becoming harder to to really step back from the business and and look at other investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. And once I moved that to property management, that it was like the the skies opened up. It was like, oh my gosh, they're making me money. <laughs> they're collecting faster than I did. Um, they're way more responsive to the tenants than um, than I am if you get the right property manager. And uh, it, was, it wasn't an expense. It was a way to actually increase the, uh, the returns on the property. And, you know, in hindsight, wish I would have done it sooner. How did, how did you find your property manager? Because I've cycled through some really, really bad property managers. And I have a couple now that, I mean, they are just absolute rock stars. How did you find your property manager? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually, um, I started with just two duplexes many, many years ago. So I, I back up, I, I did give, I had uh, two duplexes or a fourplex really. And I, I put those under property management a long time ago, mostly because I wanted to see, all right, I know how I'm doing it. I want to go see how a professional does it. And so I would sort of use that as a, you know, if there's, if I was ever stuck and I, I wanted somebody to, to, to go lean on, I would call him because he was officially my property manager for those units. And so I, I sort of use that as a source of information, um, kind of a fast track to see what good reporting looks like uh, and just get a sense of how, how a professional does it. And so I, I had a chance to test them out on a small scale. Yeah. And is it the same one or have you had same any one. bad? Okay. So yeah, you, have yeah. you had any bad experiences where you've had to fire property managers? Um, not on, on the personal assets, but actually right now, we're just going through that right now on a, on a deal that we syndicated out in uh, North Carolina. So we, uh, we did a deal working and we brought in a property manager who I hadn't worked with them, but my partner had on another asset in another state and they've been great. So they're a great company. Um, but you know, some, you know, a re- regional property manager, what's great in one state may not be great in the other state. And uh, they just were struggling to scale. And, you know, it, part of it might be the time that we're in. I mean, they were really struggling with staff and that's not unique right now. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it was not working out. And so I, I think within, geez, within three months, we made the decision that we made the wrong decision. And so we started working to uh, exit that relationship. And we just really timed it. So, all right, we'll just, we'll, we'll run it through the end of the year cut it off clean December 31st and start the new property manager January 1st. So we're actually going through that right now. And uh, so far it's working good, but like with any transition, uh, you know, wrapping up with one takes a little bit of time because you got to close out all the bills and then get the other one ramped up. But as much due diligence as you can do in advance, it's going to pay off. Is there one thing you wish you would have asked that person or done differently to qualify that property manager beforehand? Probably would have asked to go speak to 
you know, one or two more. I, you know, I, I think we did a little bit of checking in the, uh, you know, to see who else uses them. But we also, we, we assumed because we had a relationship that, you know, we knew what, what we would get. In hindsight, yeah, go back to other property owners that they're managing in that area, you know, do some digging. Just like if I was going to go hire somebody, I'm going to go look into my network and say, all right, well, who has this person worked with? Uh, we probably didn't do enough of that locally because, I mean, we had a relationship with the owner. You have 100-ish units, 110 units there in the Oregon, Portland area, but now you're starting to syndicate larger deals out in North Carolina. I think I've heard that you're also looking at South Carolina, Atlanta, and Florida. Um, why are you looking at those markets? And, and talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, not just us looking at those markets. I mean, yeah. that's where a lot of people are. But I mean, it has a lot to do with uh, where are people moving to? Um, where is their growth? Where are companies investing? And, you know, when companies are investing there and people are moving there, that drives up you know, home values, that drives up rental demand. Um, and in those markets where there's already you know, a, a shortage of you know, workforce housing, that, that need growth uh, of their economies is putting even more pressure on the workforce housing. So, it, you know, it's just, you know, it makes for a good place to be able to invest, be able to run a business plan, get good rent growth. Um, you know, and provide good returns to your investors uh, versus, you know, like in my backyard, very restrictive tenant laws, um, very difficult to uh, evict a tenant that's not paying versus, you know, in Carolina or, you know, in Florida, we go file it. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they're out within 30 days or less. Um, it might be three months uh, or more here in uh, Portland. Yeah. Let me ask about that then, because how are you navigating that? I've been very fortunate that um, my single family portfolio here is in Nashville and then my multifamily is in more tenant friend or landlord friendly states. How are you managing some of those laws that are in Oregon? Because I've heard that Portland, Chicago, LA, New York, they're all just very restrictive on being more tenant focused than landlord focused when really the answer is a balance. So how are you managing through that? Yeah, and this is something that I've learned, and, and also one of the reasons that drove me to um, hire a property manager is um, one way you stay out of trouble is having quality management, right? If if the, the tighter you're managing it, the faster you're staying ahead of a potential problem, maybe a tenant that's starting to slow pay. Um, if you're taking care of it now, you can get ahead of it. Um, but if uh, if you let it start to creep creep along. Um, you know, if a tenant gets a couple months behind, it gets really hard for them to catch up. You're going to leave some money on the table. Um, you know, and that's, I mean, that's my best advice is just being incredibly attentive to you know, small changes with how they're paying, how they're maintaining their unit. You know, if you're starting to see problems on the exterior of the unit and they're leaving trash or there's things, you know, maybe that other people are starting to show up in the unit and you got to get out there with warnings, notices, uh, and just manage them tightly. You know, because it's like mother hen, right? They'll respond if they're being kind of pushed or nudged. But the longer that rope gets, the more of that rope they're going to take. Yeah. And I like to tell people too, like if the process says that you have to give them a written notice and then wait 14 days, don't let them tell you that they'll have you the money in three days and to just wait. Because all you're doing is punting the process down the line. Yeah. I would just refer back to the way the law is written and says, it says that I have to give you this notice because you're a day behind. If you pay me in three days, then we're all good. But if not, then this goes into effect still. And you have your 14 days, 21 days, whatever the, the law says there. Yep. So you, you're doing all of this, you're scaling, you're syndicating, you got your single, uh, your local portfolio there. And you're also doing this as a W2 employee. So as someone that's looking to learn, how do you balance both? 
what tips can you share on how you're able to kind of balance both of these these demands? Yeah, you know, I for me it's been a uh, look. I'm I'm 50 years old, so it's not like I did this overnight. It's been a very slow and kind of diligent growing process. And so, I mean, that's my first piece of advice is get your expectations set correctly. I mean, if you want to go big quickly, well, you know, go for it. I'm not saying don't, but you know, if you're going to work and you're going to do this on the side, um, you know, it, it is a balance and you have to kind of find that right amount of time that you can give to it while still performing at a high level in your W2 job. And I have this conversation all the time with like younger people that are, that, that I know maybe locally that, you know, want to get in the real estate space or they, you know, they've been trying to do some wholesaling. Maybe they're doing a little bit of flipping and they're like, I want to go full time. And I got to get out of my W-2 job. I just got to, and I, I need to go do real estate. And I'll ask them, why? You know, what, what is it you're trying to go do? And if they give me any indication that they're just trying to get out of their W-2 job, I'm like, you already failed. You know, you're, you're le- you've got the total wrong mindset to go become an entrepreneur. Um, you need to go fix your mindset first, go kick butt in what you're doing, or at least kind of get your mind right before you jump in. Because if you're going to go do this full time, you are going to have to work harder than you are now for three to five years. And if you can go do that, grind it out every day, um, a lot of weekdays and weekends, evenings, um, you're going to be in great shape, but it's, it's, it is a job and it's more work than what you're doing right now. Yeah. And one of the things I would say too, is you've had 20 years doing this, right? So you've seen the dot-com, you've seen the 08, you've seen the 2020 uh, ups and downs and the cycles there. And for some folks that I talk to, it's the same way, right? They've been doing this for two years. They've seen nothing but greatness. So they think everything is rosy, but what happens when your credit lines freeze? What happens when your loans start to get called? What happens when you have tenants that won't pay and there's uh, local laws that says you can't evict them and things like that? How are you going to survive that and float through those times? Um, And and you've been doing this all along, working at W2. Do you see yourself going into doing this full time? Are you going to, what's what's your plan? Yeah, you know, I think about that a lot. I mean, the, the goal was always to continue to build this up over time so that when we did make the exit from the W-2 or maybe the kids were out of college, that um, we could exit and not really have to worry about the 401k paying for retirement. I would be able to take, you know, whatever my income was from my W-2 and just make the pivot. And, and that same income, hopefully more, is coming in from the real estate. Um, but no, I don't really have an intention um, on when, it, you know, from a tech sales perspective, I, I love what I do. And um, it's interesting now because during COVID, you know, my, my kids are at that point where I don't have to drive them around. You know, they're both driving. So it's like, I have more time on my hands. I, I recently exited out of a, a volunteer commitment that was taking up a tremendous amount of time during my week. So, um, you know, it's given me a lot more opportunity to continue to focus on my W2 job. Um, continue to help other younger sales reps kind of grow in their career, um, you know, launch a podcast for tech salespeople and just keep doing what I'm doing, doing on the real estate side. So, you know, I don't know, I, I kind of, the way it's going right now, I just want to continue to grow it and scale it and get better at what I do every day. And so I don't really see a, a hard date on when I would exit. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the podcast, but before we get there, you and I are in similar situations where we're both sales leaders at big technology companies. And one of the reasons I got into real estate is it really just helped me smooth out some of the ups and downs that I was seeing in my commission checks. 
you have a great quarter, all of a sudden you're in accelerator land and you think that you're riding the top of the roller coaster. And then all of a sudden the next quarter comes and you're not getting squat and you realize that maybe you shouldn't have spent all that money. How has um, real estate kind of helped you balance out your cash flow going through this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. So early on, um, we didn't take probably for the first, I mean, I'll say for the first 10 to 15 years, I'd have to go back and look. Um, I think about 10 years into it, we didn't take a penny out of the account. We would any cash flow that we would get, just leave it in there. In my mind, that was that was savings. Just left it in there and let it grow. And then uh, if we found another deal, maybe throw a little bit more cash into it and buy another deal. And then continue to let that cash flow grow, let it sit in there, um, maybe throw a little bit more in and do it again. And so kind of compounding off of that cash flow. And that that actually helped us go out and get bigger deals because if I would have started using that cash flow, my lifestyle probably would have creeped up and I probably would have been able to go out and get that 26 unit building. And so when we started taking cash out, I mean, it was my partner and I were each taking out $1,000 a month. So not really life-changing in any way. Uh, and then we we bumped it up a little bit, um, you know, about five years ago. Um, but I, I really used that money to pay for like my kid's private tuition. Um, you know, if we're going to go buy a car, we're paying cash. You know, and by the way, my car is a, a Chrysler Pacifica. So it's not like I broke <laughs> the bank, um, but we would use that money for some of those special purposes or, you know, go throw it back into the 529 account or, or uh, you know, or maybe, you know, I've taken some of that and thrown that into an LP position into a, you know, a real estate deal. So um, try not to spend it, um, really just redeploy it for things that are needed for life or for other, other investment opportunities. Yeah, that's very similar to kind of how I'm running things right now is every year I can, I have enough cash flow coming in from the real estate now to where I can make basically make two LP positions. And I use those LP positions to build relationships with operators, but also continue that cash flow. So now my cash flow is making cash flow and making cash flow and compounding. Um, and I, I mean, I like to say too, like, the 401k is not a bad place to put your money. If, it, if you're deciding between do I 401k or do I go out and buy the next Chrysler minivan or, or Porsche, then put it, in the, put it in the 401k. But at the same time, I see a lot of my peers in the technology industry that are basing their retirement based off of two things. One, their 401k. They're assuming that it will always go up and to the right and that it will beat inflation. And by the time they get to 59 and a half, when they can pull it out, assuming that age hasn't changed, that there will be enough there. Or they've got enough equity in their tech company through RSUs or other bonus options and things like that, that they're banking on a big acquisition or them going public and things like that. And one of the things I'm a big proponent of is real estate can be a lifestyle cash flow generating machine. So if you ever wanted to walk away, I'm not a proponent of walking away if you like what you do and you add value and you're happy and excited to come to work every day. But if you ever wanted to, you have cash flow coming in where if all of that was stuck into equity options or RSUs, you can't live off of paper profit. So I don't know if you've experienced that or, or see other people in the industry. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. You know, and that was, um, that was a, another early lesson that I learned when I was working for um, one of my technology jobs was I remember being up in uh, one of our remote offices and, you know, we had a couple uh, reps that, that were, were there in the office and they were, they were older. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how, how old they were, but I, I knew because um, I'd been watching these guys through their career, I knew that they had had been really successful at Cisco. I, I knew that they'd been at some other companies, had crushed on their quota. Um, and I was always perplexed. Why were they still grinding it out as a sales rep if they'd done so well? 
Well, you know, they didn't directly tell me this, but as I started to poke around and kind of dig around the edges a little bit, what I learned was, well, you know, they keep buying a new Mercedes and a BMW and they bought that extra ski house and, you know, they've got a couple snowmobiles or whatever it is, you know, they've got all the toys. So their lifestyle had grown. And um, if they retire, their 401k is not going to maintain that lifestyle. And so they maybe just weren't in that position to where they wanted to dial the lifestyle back. So they've just have chosen to continue to work. And I was like, I, that's not what I want to do. I, I want to have options. Um, but I do see a lot of uh, tech salespeople that sort of fall into that trap. And I, I get it, right? It's, you make it, and it is fun to enjoy uh, some of the fruits of your hard labor. Yeah, it's funny you say that about Cisco, because I, I think most of our listeners who are in technology will understand Cisco was the uh, the the greatest stock to own in 2000. I mean, I know a ton of people that made a ton of money in Cisco in 2000, 2001, et cetera, when they were blowing up. And I remember there's one specific person in my career that I came across. They were like, oh yeah, that guy is super, super wealthy. I mean, he's got, he made it all at Cisco. He's got a, a house, a lake house, a beach house. He's got a boat at each one of them and a car and Porsches to drive around and things like that. And my thought was the same. Then why is he grinding it out? Like sell one of those houses and never have to work again or work on the things that you're passionate about and the causes that you care about. So yeah, it's it's funny that you uh, just said Cisco there because it just brought up him in my head. Yeah, and that equity piece. I mean, you know, it, we shifted from stock options to RSUs, but I mean, back in the day when there were stock options, I mean, you know, I did see a lot of reps that would fall into that trap of they were feeling pretty good about their wealth, even though they hadn't vested yet. And I remember being with a buddy, and he, you know, he he wouldn't mind me telling you this, but being with a buddy, we're we're out looking at. Uh, test driving used Lamborghinis and, you know, cause he had a, you know, it was like $10 million on paper. Well, then it all went to zero. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you have to be careful because while you had that $10 million on paper, that starts to you know, creep into other things with the cash that you do have. And, uh, you know, just, it's a little bit easier to say, hey, you know, maybe I will go out and buy this extra thing because I got this in the back end. It's coming. Well, it, it never came. Yep. So uh, yeah, it's, it's got to pay attention to how you do it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, making sure you live off of your base and I put my commission checks towards real estate. And if you live off your base and just have your commission checks going into real estate, then you're probably be in a good position. But I sold my um, primary condo here recently and that money was sitting in the bank. I had an investment that I was lined up on and unfortunately that deal fell through. So it was just sitting there. Well, all of a sudden now I've got a brand new bike. Most of our listeners know I'm an <laughs> Ironman triathlon. So I love riding bikes. I love the newest gear there. Um, I have a new podcast, mic. I've got, you know, some fancy lights in the background and I'm like, shoot, I'm falling into that trap just because it's there. So um, I don't know how, how have you set aside money throughout your, your time? Have you looked at it from like a base commission standpoint or anything else? Yeah. Um, not so much a base uh, commission perspective, but I, um, one of the lessons I took away from 08 or 09 uh, during that recession was I never wanted to be in a position where if there was a deal out there, I couldn't go take it down. Cause I remember that, you know, and we did buy a couple um, properties during that recession, but I just remember there being some great deals out there and, um, you know, values had dropped, but banks wouldn't lend and I didn't have any cash, enough cash. And I didn't really have any ability to raise capital, didn't even know how to do it. Um, so at that point, you know, the idea of having a cash reserve uh, became really important. And, and, you know, now I understand how to raise capital. So that's less important because I don't have to go do it all on my own. Um, but the other lesson I took from that recession was I want to have, you know, I start with a cash reserve that buys me some time if something 
catastrophic happens. If I lose my job and in theory, I want to maintain my lifestyle uh, for let's say three to six months or even a year, what does that look like? So it doesn't have to all be in cash, but fairly liquid. So I start there. And then after that, try to stick to kind of a consistent budget and then everything you know, right now, I don't really want as much cash because I mean, the more cash you're holding with inflation, you're losing value. So I'm trying to get as much of that in play as possible and diversify it across um, re asset, real estate asset types, markets. Uh, I'll invest in myself. I'll invest in other operators. Um, you know, I tend to do kind of the minimums where I can um, just to be as diversified as possible. Yep. Yep. Well, let's close on your, your podcast here. So you started the high tech freedom podcast. Tell us a little bit about like, what's the podcast about? Why did you start it? Yeah. Well, so I started it for the same uh, reason we were talking about with uh, you know, the high tech salespeople. It's just, you know, you make good money. It's easy to spend that if you're not diligently thinking about what's that long-term freedom that I'm working for. So I, I really started the podcast at, to uh, just to, to help other tech salespeople learn from some of the best tech salespeople in the market. And so it's the theme of the podcast is you first need to learn from the best in order to earn like the best. And then once you earn it, how do you take those harder and commission dollars and redeploy it in a way that can create additional income streams? And so, um, you know, I love bringing on, you know, number one reps and we're in that season right now in January where companies are doing their sales conferences or global sales conferences, giving out the top sales person of the year award rewards or awards. And so I love bringing those people on to talk about, Hey, what's the trick? What's the secret? You know, what did you, what did you do to maintain success over the year? And I just was recording one yesterday where um, he's been number one multiple times and that does not happen by accident. And so, and I didn't really, go into this with, with a lot of expectation. I just actually had some extra time on my hands, but one of the things that's coming out of it is every time I interview somebody, I learn something. Yeah. And as a sales leader, I'm like, I'm going to take back that right back to my team and use that on our next team call. So I'm, you know, as a, you know, as a 50 year old sales leader, I'm still learning every day. And that was the other thing that I've always been very passionate about is I am a lifetime learner. And uh, I, I believe that if you're not investing in yourself, you're not investing in your skill, a tech salesperson can make as much money, if not more than a doctor. And doctors constantly have to go through training and recertification. And if a, as a tech sales professional, if you can make that same amount of money and more, why shouldn't you be doing the same to, to raise your game? And so that's the goal is just to help other people uh, in that job, uh, maybe earlier in their career, benefit from some of the experience of other people that have, um, have taken that journey. Yeah, I love it. And I couldn't agree more with some of the things you were saying about continuing learning and also learning from the best. I, I joked the other day, we had an attorney on and I said, hey, I've got an, a full hour of unbillable, billable hours here. So I'm going to ask you every question that I've ever <laughs> wanted to ask an attorney for free. And so the connections you make are great, but also what you learn is even better. So Chris, I want to shift us now into the, the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what's a book that you've read recently um, that's given you a paradigm shift, or do you have a favorite book? Yeah. So uh, one reason is the uh, that I've read is the Who Not How. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Dan Sullivan. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's been God, it's it's been such a mind mind opener for me. And it, it, even going back to that example of just having a hard time releasing my own investments to property management, um, that's just a per perfect example of of by looking at how. There's, how there's somebody out there more qualified to maybe do a task that 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 I could do and allow me to focus on higher value activities. 
know, that's how you scale. And just as an example, today, I'm actually officially hiring my 18-year-old son to work for me uh, one day a week just to take care of some tasks that I either dread doing or simply don't get them done because I always view them as lower value tasks. And then they sit there and they never get done, but they do need to get done. Um, so he's, he's an example of my latest uh, who. Yep. That's, that was the theme of my 2021 was who, not how. And actually I listened to um, the CTO of HubSpot talk the other day about, he's a co-founder as well of HubSpot, how they grew. And he said, I don't know, I was 19 and I decided that my time as an engineer, a software engineer was worth $150 an hour. So if I ever got something that was under $150, I just started outsourcing it. And I just, that really hit home that he, he even at a young age knew that his time was worth more than, than the money. Um, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day and the habits that you have. What are some of the things that you do every single day? Yeah. So for better, or for worse, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly habitual person. So my, my morning routine, incredibly structured, um, but I do get up and I go for a, once I get my coffee, I go for a two mile walk uh, with my dog every morning, rain or shine uh, when I'm not traveling. And it's the same route. Uh, come back, read, you know, read for about 10 minutes, uh, do, do a little bit of journaling, have four questions that I answer, uh, review my five and 10 year goals and aspirations. And then I, uh, I have a paper planner that I use just for my work day or week and quarter. Uh, and I, I spend a few minutes, uh, you know, filling out my plan for the day. And uh, so I do that every day, um, ideally. And uh, I just find that that's the day may get out of, totally out of control, but that just gets me off on the right path. And uh, you know, kind of keeps me a little bit grounded as I go through what is normally a pretty busy and chaotic day. Yep. Grounded is the best word I would use there. When I'm outside of my normal morning cycle, then I just feel ungrounded for the rest of the day. So uh, I like it. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, there's no shortage of advice, but I do remember when I first graduated from college, left California, moved up to Oregon, my dad gave me some advice. And he said, um, this is when I just really, I don't know, three months into my first job, he said, below your means. You know, you may not right away have an the ideal apartment you want, um, but you'll be much better off down the road versus kind of living slightly beyond your means and being excited about having a nice apartment. Um, you know, you're gonna have a hard time getting ahead after that. And so I did move to I, I moved to Oregon and instead of renting a kind of a lower end apartment, I rented a bedroom in a house for I don't know, maybe $200. I think it might have been less. Um, but I only did that for a year. And that that then freed me up uh, to be able to buy a home within one year of being out of college. And so that's, that's just something that I think, once again, just got me off to a good start early in my career. Yep. Well, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Yeah, definitely launching my podcast. Uh, I've never been, I've never been comfortable with self-promotion. I like to sell, but I've always been a very um, conservative, conservative and private person, but man, it's just been a blast building it up and always thinking about ways to make it better. And, you know, you've, you've been doing this now for over a year. So, um, you know, there's always opportunities to improve it and just watching it go from an, just an inkling of an idea to out launched and, um, you know, out there for people to listen to. It's just been really fulfilling. Yeah. I want to definitely nerd out on that, but I'm going to, I'm going to stop myself because I agree. Like I'm, I'm coming up on the year anniversary and I look back at all the things I've learned, the things I've messed up along the way. And right as, right as I think I've got this process smoothed out, I send you the wrong link and the wrong calendar invite. And I'm still feel like I'm figuring out all over again, but that's when I feel happiest in my life is when I'm growing and learning new things. So I love it. 
Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah. You know, God, there's so many people, but I, I would go for alive and, uh, I would go sit down with Elon Musk. Um, you know, he's got some interesting, he's an interesting person, but I think what, what really impresses me about him is, I mean, I just can't think of a bigger thinker that then puts just relentless passion behind it. And I'm sure if I sat down and had a bowl of ice cream with him, I would walk away with some idea that I didn't have before. And I definitely would walk away with a big shot of energy. I think that's the best way I've ever heard it phrased is there's probably no bigger thinker out there on the planet today that at least I know about. I mean, this guy is talking about colonizing Mars and really, in my opinion, he's a part of Tesla to learn how to transfer energy, store energy so that he can make the trip to Mars. So he's out there slinging cars to, to eventually go to Mars. So I like it. Um, Chris, fantastic interview. I appreciate the time. We're going to have to have you back on because we didn't even start talking about leadership and some of the things you're learning from your podcast. So go ahead and pencil us back in after words uh, here in a couple of years so you can tell us all that you've learned. But if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or listen to the High Tech Freedom Podcast, where's the best place we could point them? Yeah, so um, on LinkedIn, I am uh, just Chris Freeman. Um, you can find me there. Uh, my website, hightechfreedom.com. And uh, you can find the High Tech Freedom podcast on all the Spotify, Apple, all the different uh, podcast tools. Awesome. And we'll make sure we link those in the show notes. Thanks again, Chris. And we'll look forward to having you back on soon. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.